Good morning, church. My name is Dennis. I am one of the pastors here at Grace Covenant Church. It's my privilege this morning to bring to you God's word. This morning we are going to be in Psalm 56. The title of this sermon comes from the psalm. I forgot to relay this information to Charlene and Charlie, but when when I am afraid, I will trust in you. I put my trust in you. If there's a theme for this sermon this morning, it is verse 3. If you're going to be in a pew Bible, I believe it's on page 446. Let's read Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all the day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts against me are for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. May God bless the reading and exposition of his all-sufficient word this morning for us. Once upon a time, probably dating two, three years ago by this point, Pastor Andrew, who has since gone to California, preached through Psalm 19. And within Psalm 19, he used a phrase that some of you may remember. He used the phrase, revelation receivers do we remember this okay he called us the people of god revelation receivers meaning we receive good and bad revelation about god depending upon where we look and in the same way i didn't come up with this phrase but in the same way we are theology obtainers not as catchy as revelation receivers but again theology obtainers your knowledge and how you understand god whether good or bad affects every area of your life your worldview your value your commitments your responses and actions in good times and in bad and the same is true for me 
One pastor said these words, if you get your theology from your circumstances, sooner or later, whenever the storm comes, you're going to come to the conclusion that God does not love you. And if you come to that conclusion, your confidence in God, your joy will be fleeting. More importantly, by not getting your theology right and how you understand God through the storms of life, you're really, we are really misrepresenting who God is, which is an even bigger issue. The God who holds you, the God who sustains you, the one who is, you are held fast in his hand, the one who gives you life and breath, the very next heartbeat that your heart takes, we misrepresent him. To piggyback on Joel's sermon from last week, he used a term called severe mercy. And I think a more appropriate way, really, to say the storms of life is to say severe mercy. Whenever we look uh, at it through the perspective, through the lens of a severe mercy, there is a sovereign governing or, or, or control of a mercy that's given to us by God. Whereas, if we say the storms of life, in the sense, just as storms are out of control, storms of life may seem to happen without the sovereign care and control of God. Severe mercy, I believe, is a better term. And this is whenever God utilizes suffering to reveal himself to us. So instead of getting your theology from your circumstances during a severe mercy moment, we should run to God's word to be informed on the true nature and character of God who we are in relation to God so that we come to a different conclusion. And this is what we eventually will see in the life of David. Looking at your Bibles this morning, if you look at the text that's right above the main text, this, we, we've, we've called it, uh, I believe we've used this numerous times, the superscription. We get an idea of the historical context of what David was going through at this moment whenever he meditated, whenever he prayed, whenever he wrote this psalm, based upon the superscription in Psalm 56. In our case today, this superscription sheds light on the historical context in relation to David. A mitcom of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And just based upon that, we know that David, for some reason or another, thought that it was a good idea whenever he was fleeing Saul to go to the area of the Philistines. Why, why would this be an issue of David going to the Philistines? Well, because he killed Goliath, right? King Achish knows, knew who David was. The servants of this king knew who David was. And whenever David came to this area, they were like, aren't you the guy? Aren't you the guy that slayed Goliath? Aren't you the guy that songs were sung about you, that Saul uh, slayed his thousands, but David, you slayed your tens of thousands? Are you not the guy? And at this point, David's like, forgetting about the quarrel that they had, crud, they, they, they remembered me. This is not good. And uh, 1 Samuel 21 helps us understand 
a little bit more about what David was going through. This is what 1 Samuel 21, 12 through 13 says. David was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. This is memorable. Some of you are going to remember this whenever Pastor Joel preached through this. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane. In their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. So David's temporary fake insanity worked. Achish is like, we have enough madmen in our community. I, I don't want another one. So David's temporary insanity worked. So he left. He escaped to the cave of Adullam. And this is where he meditated, prayed, wrote Psalm 56. But David, as he pretended to be insane, as spittle and drool ran down his mouth, this was a response by a person who really took matters in his own hands. Hopefully we can see that. This was not a person that put their trust in the Lord, especially the promise and trusting God in relation to this promise that he would be king. David knew that the Lord made a promise. You will be my king. And David just happened to have a little bit of amnesia, which we've talked about before, forgetting about the promises of God. So he decided to be crazy and let drool run down his beard. To help remind us of that promise that took place with David, I'm going to read for us 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare. Skipping down just a little bit, Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Lord chose David to be king. But David's response to Achish of pretending to be insane was not based upon the promised. This was because David's, going back to what I mentioned a little bit ago, this was because David's theology at this moment was based upon his current circumstance. He feared his life in the presence of his enemies. He feared his life in the presence of King Achish and his servants. Some might say that David was cunning on his part. It's a pretty good idea to be crazy, to act crazy. If you're ever faced with a situation where people are going to kill you, just just act crazy and you'll get out of it. But causing your drool to run down your beard, I'm not sure what he was marking on the wall, but I mean, again, it was crazy behavior. This is not a person that represents someone that has a lot of confidence in God. And at this moment, David's theology was distorted. And he had a fear of man that overshadowed his confidence in the Lord. And what we read in 1 Samuel 21 and then in Psalm 56 
You might be thinking, how could this be the same person? Crazy person, marking all over the walls, probably saying a bunch of gibberish, drool running down his beard, to what we see in Psalm 56 and what we just read. What happened in between then and the moment that he wrote Psalm 56? Well, let's look at verse one and see how David responds to God in this severe mercy moment. And as we look at verses one and two very briefly, hopefully you're gonna see that there is a difference here, almost as if he took some antidote, and we're gonna talk a little bit more about what that antidote to David's sphere really was. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. So in this prayer, David immediately calls upon God to be gracious to him because those who trample him and those who attack him. And really, there might be two sets of people here. Look with me at the text. Man tramples on me, plural, yet there is an attacker that oppresses me. Surely, this could be Saul, this could be Achish, this, this could be the servants of Achish, this could be the Philistines in general as he is in their area, their territory. They all want David's life. So those who trample on David are more than one. Those who attack David, David was speaking of a single attacker. And I'm really not sure who he is exactly referring to because the text doesn't tell us. But looking ahead, I think if we go to Psalm 5, 56, 5 through 6, since the, the, the trampling and the attacking and the oppressing is really vague, I think 5 through 6 gives us a glimpse about what this oppressing behavior looked like. Let's look there. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts against me are for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps, they waited for my life. They injured my cause. I think other translations, more so than the ESV, really do help us here. The NIV, I believe, helps us uh, more. Uh, the, the, the NASB, the, uh, the Christian Standard, this is what this translation says. All day long, they distort my words. They injure my cause, they distort my words. Essentially, these enemies of David were most likely twisting his words, misrepresenting him, using their own words to plot against him, but their thoughts about David were evil. They stirred up strife. They lurked. They waited for David's every move. They waited for the right opportunity to kill him. Some of you may be thinking, David is a warrior. We already mentioned a little bit ago the song that used to be sung about him, about him slaying more people than Saul, tens of thousands of people. Yet, thinking about that picture of David and what we see in verse 20, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 21, David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish. And looking back with me in verse three, as David's enemies were oppressing him, what was his 
response. When I am afraid. Again, David was the warrior. David fought many people. And because the Lord was on his side, won many battles. But yet, David, he's afraid in this moment. And what's interesting about this text, if it doesn't, it doesn't say, if I am afraid, does it? It says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I'm not advocating, and I don't want to validate fear as some badge of honor. I'm not saying that fear over man, fear over circumstances is even a good thing. But the text says when. Actually, the Hebrew translation, going to the Hebrew, when is translated in the day. In the day when I am afraid. This very psalm concludes and assumes that David was fearful, that we, the people of God, can be a fearful people. And in the Psalms, the most common theme of fear is the fear of powerful enemies, those who want to take the life of David or take the life of another. For most of us here today, fear doesn't look like the fear that we see in the Psalms. But yet, these fears are everywhere. I remember whenever I was a police officer uh, for, for 12 years, I would go to what we would call a hot call. Uh, I believe Leroy probably knows what that term is. Going to a hot call meant that, you know, it's, it's, it's getting pretty bad. Generally, it, this is not like the mundane, well, there, there's, a, there's a loud music call. Please go tell them to shut the music down. But this is us going to a disturbance, going to a disturbance at a house where there's a history of weapons, going to a disturbance whenever there is weapons involved. And I have to admit, you know, going to these calls routinely, it was just me praying out loud. As I'm looking at my computer, trying to get details of the call, as dispatch is telling me stuff, I am like, Lord, I need you. Lord, protect me. Because... It's hit the fan, Lord, and I need you. Like, it is getting dangerous out here, Lord. This is what Ed Welch, someone that I admire, says about fear and anxiety, because it is all around us, guys. Fear and anxiety are not so much problems that occasionally seize us. They are regular features of daily life that can either be quiet in the background or loud and dominating in the foreground. Fear and anxiety lives under the words such as stress, worry, jittery, on edge, pressure, dread. They are tied to guilt and so many other everyday struggles. If you feel guilty, you fear judgment. If you feel shame, you fear being seen and exposed before others. Depression is fear that's given up. Today, it says it's dark and unbearable. The future is worse. It's hopeless. Fear says that we're powerless and we're weak. There's troubles that are ahead. Things that you cherish are at risk. And there is not much that we can do about it, says fear. Fear even says that you can out the grace of God that you are beyond saving, that God doesn't love you, 
that you are a constant disappointment, that he barely tolerates you, and that you were on edge of him giving you up. I often fear myself, thinking about my life as a police officer that I mentioned a little bit ago, it was routinely. I'm no longer in that life, but the fear continues. I'm fearful right now as a weak vessel that is not sufficient for this, preaching to you God's word, I'm very fearful of this. Surrounding the details of that precious little girl right there. I'm fearful. I'm fearful of losing her. We've only had her for a week. I was fearful when my brother was hospitalized for about a month, last month. I was fearful whenever I received a call from my mother that she was diagnosed with cancer. And then later, you know, coming to the knowledge that she was now in hospice. I was fearful whenever EMS called my telephone one day during basketball practice as I was coaching my team, telling me that my dad was involved in a fatality accident. Super fearful. And guys, I know that you were fearful too. I've been fearful alongside of you as you have lost loved ones, as you have lost children, as you have lost jobs, as you battled illnesses and you currently still battle illness the enemy would want nothing more than for these trials to quote first peter to about these severe mercies that they would not result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of jesus christ but that we would continue to feel helpless that we would feel as though that God doesn't love us. It is the devil's work to promote that kind of fear. And David helps us within this psalm, showing us how we can respond to fear in a godly way. Let's look at verse three. When I am afraid, what does David do? I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? I mentioned an antidote a little bit ago. We see that antidote now, do we not? The antidote to David's fear from being trampled on, from being oppressed all the day long from those who wanted to take his life, the antidote was faith. It seems pretty easy, does it not? That's such a, an easy answer, Dennis but that is the answer. Friends, that is the answer. Whenever you are dealing and going through trials of various kinds, severe mercies, and you are feeling hopeless, and you are feeling helpless, and you feel like God has abandoned you, what is the antidote? Because you know that that's not the truth. Deep down in your heart of hearts, you know what God's word says about you about who you are in relation to Christ. The antidote is faith. 
This is what David does. He places his faith, his trust in the Lord. And I love what Derek Kidner says about this particular verse. He says, faith is seen here as a deliberate act in defiance of one's emotional state. David didn't trust his feelings. David was feeling afraid. So much so, remember, not that long ago he was acting crazy. The antidote, David trusted the Lord. David didn't trust his feelings. He resisted them. His theology was no longer on his circumstances. His theology was based upon who God actually is, his character, his nature. David responded by flying by faith to God in prayer, remembering who God was and pleaded with the Lord to be gracious to him. Verse four, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. David also, not only did he go to God in prayer, but he also fled to God's word. The word whose word I praise, David says, in view would include all of scripture that David would have available to him at that moment, including the promise that he would be king. We mustn't forget the healing balm that is scripture. Whenever we are fearful, whenever our hearts are afflicted, we must, taking David's example, fling to God by faith and prayer, fling to God in going to his word. Psalm 119 echoes this, verses 49 through 52. Hear the words of this psalmist. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Looking at this psalm very briefly, your word gives me hope. It's my comfort in affliction. Your promises give me life. I don't turn away from your law. Your law and your rules from an old synonymous with God's word. God's word is a healing balm to the afflicted and to the fearful heart. So David goes to God's word reminding himself of who God is. He trusts in the Lord, the one who said that he would be king the one who guided him and protected him up to this point and spared his life many times, even before now. He exclaims in the latter part of verse four, I shall not be afraid what can flesh do to me. Skipping down, looking very briefly ahead to verses 10 through 11, David repeats himself essentially almost verbatim, and his logic is pretty simple, according to one commentator. If God had said David would be king, there is nothing any human can do to prevent that from happening. Thus, David's rhetorical question as to what flesh can accomplish against him 
is based squarely on the fact of God's promise to him and his confidence in God's character. God's, God keeps his word and no man can prevail against it. And after David gives the description of how his enemies oppressed him in this prayer, he also asks God a question in verse seven. In reference to those who oppress him, followed by a request for what the Lord does to him. Let's look there briefly. For their crime will they escape. In wrath cast down peoples, O God. In other words, Lord, do you you see what they're doing to me? If I am your chosen king and they seek my life, why do you continue to allow them to live in wrath, in your righteous, holy anger, cast them down? David wanted justice for his enemies. And this wasn't the first time, and it's not gonna be the last, where David petitioned for God to respond in anger, in wrath, according for the wicked. Couldn't David respond in vengeance? That might be a question you could be answering yourself. He was a mighty warrior, like we said a moment ago. Yes, David could have responded, just like he could have responded to Saul whenever he was near Saul and he cut off a little slit of his robe, if you remember that. And he felt terrible and he repented of that because Saul was the Lord's anointed. David could have responded in vengeance. He could have taken matters in his own hands. They didn't work out for him before, right? He pretended to be a crazy person. Again, he didn't honor God that way. That wasn't a good biblical godly response to fear. But David would have surely remembered Moses' words from Deuteronomy 32. Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the Lord will vindicate his people and he will have compassion on his servants. Instead of David responding in vengeance, he knew and he trusted that the Lord would vindicate his people, that the Lord would judge his enemies and he would do so righteously. Though David did feel that it was necessary to try to motivate God to do that right now in his timetable, we don't see that in this psalm where God judges David's enemies at that moment. Looking at verse eight and nine, in what seems to be a roller coaster of a prayer of David, which really often describes my prayers, we read this. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. And once again, in David's prayer, we, he reminds himself not only of God's character, but also that he is intimately known by God. He knows that God keeps a record of all of his tossings, of all of his wonderings, that God sees every tear that he cries, 
This is David's way of saying to God, I have lamented and I've cried. My tears have been my food many times. I know that you keep a record of my suffering and lament. I know that you care. You aren't aloof and you aren't dismissive with my pain. He mentions his tossings. He mentions his tears. And this is David's appeal to God's compassion and therefore really a, a motivation to try to push God to act quickly against his attackers. But what can't be missed is David's confidence in God so that whenever he calls to the Lord, what will his enemies do at that point? According to the text, they flee. David knows that God will never abandon him, that God is for him. And if God is for him, then who could be against him? And what is true of David? I recall of a, a video, uh, a YouTube video. Uh, I forget the brother's name. His first name is Matt Chandler, where he goes, you are not David. Have we seen this? Probably have. It's pretty good. But this is whenever people are equating themselves to David and they're equating Goliath to their problems. And all they have to do is take a stone and a slingshot and sling it at the problems at Goliath and Goliath falls. Again, we aren't David, but beloved. We can take something from this in the way that David responds in what is true about David is also true for us that you are intimately known by God as well. All of your tears that you have ever cried, is this not a glorious word picture of what we see? That heaven marks every tear that falls from your eye. That God keeps count of every one of your tossings. That God sees you lament. That God sees you suffering. And he has not left you. There are tears not kept in a literal bottle, but God knows of your anguish, and he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the circumstances that's giving you fear, and it is right now giving you his all-sufficient grace. He is sustaining you, literally holding you up by the word of his power, just like he does the universe according to Hebrews even though it may feel differently, even though it may feel like you can barely hold yourself up, even though it may feel like you can barely get out of bed and you can barely stand and your knees are weak and you are just tired and you don't know that you can face another day because things keep swirling about in your head. These fear, this, this anxiousness. Beloved, what we must remember is that he is here for you. Not only is he here for you, you are never alone. He promises to be with you until the end of the age, and then he's going to be with you in person, and we'll get to see his face face to face. Just like David, the Lord is for you. And knowing that God is for us, I think for David, we see a little bit of triumph in this prayer. J.I. Packer remarks on this. 
he says, there is an added element of triumph to David's prayer in Psalm 56, knowing that God is for him. And it should be the same for us. Knowing that God is for us, sure, circumstances, trials of various kinds, they are going to be against you, but the Lord is with you, and that's where our hope lies. There is nothing more sovereign, there is nothing more powerful than him, not even the grave. Instead of battling with unbelief with God's promises, we should run to him. And to quote First Peter again in chapter four, entrusting our souls to a faithful God while doing good. So at this point in David's prayer, he asserts praise for God's word, again, repeating himself. The fearlessness he now has is not because of any human power, but it's because of what God can overcome in God's power. In verse 12 through 13, David says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Reflecting on what God did for David, God's promises for him. God knew of his sufferings. He knew of his lament. And David is confident because of what this verse says here. Again, looking at it again. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. Again, whenever we preach through Psalm 56 and Psalm 55, it was the same. David is speaking as if God has already done it, but God hasn't done it yet. But the confidence in God is so great that David's deliverance is already a reality. I will render thank offerings to you because you have delivered my soul from death and my feet from falling. David is so confident that God will deliver him again. David remembers being able to walk in the light of life as he used to do. At this point, remember, he has been on the run for a while. But all the while, God is sustaining him. God is carrying him. God is for him. And David is so confident that he is confident that he will walk with God in the light of life. I know that many of us today, as mentioned earlier, we have fears, we have anxieties, and they're running around endlessly in our minds. If you fix your eyes on your circumstances, again, you're going to come to a conclusion about God that isn't true. That he doesn't love you, that he isn't for you, that he is aloof, that he is very dismissive of our pain, that he doesn't care. But that's not true in the life of David, and that's not true in your life either. We must trust. We cannot be passive. Jerry Bridges says that trust is not a passive state of mind. 
This is war. This life that we live, friends, this is war. The enemy would want nothing more than to continue to distort your understanding and view of God. If he somehow convinces you that God doesn't love you, that God isn't for you, that God doesn't care for you, he has done his job. Praise be to God that if we are in Christ, not even the attacks of the enemy, not if we are feeling weak and wounded and we are tired of this battle, God continues to preserve. God continues to sustain you. And this will go on until the day that he calls you home or the day that he returns for his people. But we must continue to fight the fight of faith. We must flee by faith. We must go to God in prayer. We, we shouldn't take matters in our own hands whenever there's a circumstance and we try to fix things ourselves. I'm a fixer. I love fixing things. If I see that it's broken, I want to fix it right away. But that's not how the problems of life always work. And there's an element of not relying upon God, not depending upon God, but being self-sufficient. And as Joel would say, pick up ourselves by our own bootstraps. This is not what the Lord desires. This is not a godly response to fear or any afflictions of the heart. But if we are weak, if we are heavy laden, if we are cumbered with a load of care, precious, precious Savior, he is our refuge we must take it to the Lord in prayer. The word of the cross, according to Martin Lloyd-Jones, is a great discouragement slayer. Again, the word of the cross, the gospel, is a great discouragement slayer. And I will add that it is a fear slayer as well. Hear the well-known words of the Apostle Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, 31 through 39. Friends, I pray that these words would be of consolation to you. That the word of the cross, that these words that I'm about to read would be the healing balm that your afflicted heart needs as you battle fear and as you battle anxieties, as you battle trials of various kinds. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Soak it in. This is so good. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As it is written, 
For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. An emphatic no. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. This is Paul's way of saying nothing ever, ever, period, that's been in existence in the past, present, or the future, concluding, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have repented of your sin, if you have trusted in Christ, what we hear and what we read in Romans 8, 31 through 39 is for you. You are justified. You are declared not guilty for your many sins, that nothing will separate you from Christ's love, that God is for you. He will preserve you. He will protect you. He will perfect you until he calls you home or he returns for his children. Beloved, when you are afraid, place your trust in the only hope that we have in the Lord. Be still, beloved. The Lord is on your side. Let's pray. Father, Holy Father, I am so encouraged to work through this and just understand how much your people are intimately known and intimately cared for. Lord, you know everything about us, our sufferings, our lamentations, Lord, you even know our sin and the depth of that sin. Yet, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And you love us. Father, help us to respond in trust whenever we are afraid. Help us to run to your word, to be reminded of the wonderful truths of who you are, your character, your loving nature, your mercy and your forgiveness, your love, your compassion. Father, help us to preach the word of the cross to ourselves. Whenever we are facing fears, whenever we are discouraged, Father, even whenever we're feeling good, help us to preach the gospel, the word of the cross to ourselves. Thank you that your grace is sufficient for today and thank you that your mercies are new each and every morning father transform our hearts write these words on our heart we pray in christ's name amen